what does it take to power a UFO? Maybe everything we've been told about UFO propulsion is slightly off point. What if what it takes to power a UFO is an open mind to some of these other orders of propulsion? We know there are a lot of theories about wormholes. There are a variety of theories about the space-time continuum. Light speed being one of the major theories, and that's kind of the speed limit we're talking. A lot of talk about anti-gravity. And in order to create anti-gravity, you need negative mass, which brings in liquid light and the polariton condensate. If you're ready for a bumpy ride through the space-time continuum, opening your mind to explosive new ideas about propulsion and what might or could power unidentified flying objects, buckle up for this super-powered episode. Blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an Eve. I seen blast off. Blast off. Blast off. Blast off. And if you have not subscribed to Hero Paranormal, please go to Hero Paranormal on Patreon. Hit the I have five on it option and you're set for the price of a cup of coffee a month. You get all of the content behind the paywall, all of it. And uh, enough said, you can also access that through heroparanormal.com. And really quick, one more thing, please like and subscribe Hero Paranormal on YouTube. Liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast via YouTube is the only way to grind down the algorithm to where I can get more legitimacy. Although I will never be monetized on YouTube for a variety of reasons, I'm sure that's at least a way to get the podcast out there so some folks can hear it. Thanks so much for your support. So we all know the usual suspects. Eric Davis, Hal put off the tech survey studies they've been putting on, utilizing quantum computing and utilizing organic molecules in automation technology, negative mass propulsion, cognitive limits on simultaneous control of multiple unmanned spacecraft, quantum tomography of negative energy states in the vacuum, detection, and high-resolution tracking of vehicles at hypersonic velocities, of course the high-energy laser weapons, MHD air-breathing propulsion and power for aerospace applications, anti-gravity for aerospace applications, ultra-capacitors as energy and power storage devices for commercial and military applications, aneutronic fusion propulsion, cockpits in the era of breakthrough flight, 
laser light craft, nano satellites, the list goes on and on. We need to keep up on these terms because these are the terms that are going to pave our future. So in order to create anti-gravity, you need negative mass. And this has been proven and shown to be possible at the University of Rochester, utilizing polaritron condensate. So this is basically liquid light. And negative mass is a key component. If you follow UAP and UFO studies, negative mass is necessary in order to create anti-gravity. There is a law of conservation of momentum that requires that active and passive gravitational mass be identical. Einstein's equivalence principle says that inertial mass must be equal, passive gravitational mass, and all experimental evidence to date has found that it's always got to be that way. It's always the same. Don't get me going on whether or not Einstein was a fraud, because his equations with cosmological constants seem on point. But there is a lot, that's a whole other podcast going into whether or not Einstein and his corresponding achievements are worthy of the praise he received. But for the moment, let's get on with this. And although no particles are known to have negative mass, physicists, primarily Hermann Bond in 1957 and William B. Bonner in 1964 and 1989 and then Robert L. Forward have been able to describe some of the anticipated properties such particles may have, assuming that all three concepts of mass are equivalent according to the equivalence principle, the gravitational interactions between masses of arbitrary sign can be explored based on the Newtonian approximation of the Einstein field equations. In other words, the interaction laws are this. Positive mass attracts both other positive masses and negative masses. Negative mass repels both other negative masses and positive masses. So, it's pointed out that these two objects of equal and opposite mass would produce a constant acceleration on the system towards the positive mass object, an effect called runaway motion. This is where things get hairy, no pun intended, but physicists have been experimenting with this for some time. And basically the consensus is that antimatter has positive mass and should be affected by gravity just like normal matter. So, experiments provide further evidence that antiparticles have the same inertial mass as their normal counterparts. However, particle-slash-antiparticle pairs are observed to electrically attract one another. This implies that both have positive inertial mass and opposite charges, now, we hear a lot of people talking about metamaterials falling from UFOs. Metamaterials exploit the effect of the negative mass in the vicinity of the plasma frequency 
in UFOs, or what of course is more modernly called UAPs. When it comes to the example of polaritron condensate, physicists have created a fluid with negative mass, which accelerates towards you when pushed. Now, normally when an object is pushed, it accelerates in the same direction as the force applied to it. This relationship is described as the second law of motion. But in theory, matter can have negative mass in the same sense that an electrical charge can be positive or negative. So, in this state, particles move slowly and follow behavior by quantum mechanics acting like waves. And now we enter negative effect of mass in plasmonic systems. It's very interesting because these waves or acoustical branches of vibrations bring the possibility of anti-resonance propagation. I love the explanation when Bob Lazar was asked how these things work. Now let's not go down the Robert Lazar rabbit hole because uh, that's another entirely different subject. However, um, I, I did like how he explained it would be much like, I believe, a ball on a mattress. If you go on your mattress and you put a bowling ball on one side of the bed and you sit on the other, your act of sitting draws the bowling ball towards you with practically no exertion on your part to push it towards you. It's actually drawn towards you. So this is key. Negative mass, anti-gravity, anti-matter, gravitational repulsion, and space drive seem to be at least super interconnected in theory. So the question is when and whether antimatter will appear, or more generally, negative mass. Is it already being used? It's difficult to know. And according to some, it is. There's a curious belief that these things are going on, coming back to Bob Lazar, and that gravitational mass is perfected, that we have figured out how to make this work in the anti-gravity field and therefore utilize it with anti-gravity. So per Bob Lazar's explanation, if you push an ordinary ball, a bowling ball on a mattress, it moves away from your hand. No surprise. But if you pushed a ball with negative mass, it would actually accelerate backwards, moving towards you instead much like sitting on the mattress, and it might be hard to picture how this would work, but I think his explanation is among the best. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of delving into people's past and picking them apart, but Bob has a way of actually quoting a lot of these things in layman's terms. He's been ripped apart by people who claim he's not a real physicist, and I'm actually kind of thankful for that because he explains things in order and in a way that most can understand, at least in some way, shape, or form. Now, when it comes to this polaritron condensate, we're talking about very interesting, strange substance that can allow scientists to study some of the most mysterious forces in the universe. Now, I have a ton of questions when it comes to this, because we all want to know a lot of things. And among my top questions are black holes and dark energy. I've always been fascinated by this. I believe there is an abundance of dark energy in and around 
SWR, uh, Space Wolf Research Base Camp in the Uinta Basin of Utah. I believe there is an array of energies, and among them, dark energy. And if they can actually make this all work, there's no reason that when we move beyond the micron scale, we can see all kinds of new technologies come out of this. Obviously, we have the propulsion aspect. We have other militarized aspects that could be used, uh, force fields or forced shields. There's a lot of experiments that can be done right here on Earth in priority locations, which in my opinion would be places in the Uinta Basin of Utah and other locations in the, the world which have and tend to be hotspots for, well, abnormal activity. In fact, oftentimes the UFOs and UAPs people claim to have seen and the stories behind them sound similar, eerily similar. A ball of light or plasma-looking shaped lit object manifests becomes more intense and brighter over a short period of time and then either disappears at a high rate of speed or demanifests and disappears altogether. Now, interestingly, light has propulsion. Light can propel itself and in fact give the impression that it disappears because it's gone. It is gone. So, the enigma of the polariton condensate is an interesting one, and one that has a lot of tangible assets, in my opinion. So, the National Security Administration, the U.S. government, and others say UFOs are real, and I have to agree with them. However, many things are often mistaken for UFOs. And among those things are, well, ball lightning. When the electric field above a storm produces dancing flashes of bright light or they are at a lower altitude, this can be misidentified. Also, there are other light anomalies which can be misidentified. Uh, light reflecting off of strange cloud formations. Uh, we also have the recent example of the balloons. Balloons can be easily, easily misidentified for UFOs. And we have an array of military experiments. Now, got, not getting too far off of the topic of balloons, I thought it was very interesting that many of these quote-unquote UFOs, right around the time these balloons were being shot down, were, well, described as being crystalline in nature. Now, that's very odd, because if you go back to the story about Roswell and Jesse Marcel having some of this metamaterial or memory metal, whatever it was, I doubt that it was a piece of tinfoil, um... But this memory metal, even Jesse Marcel's son, who got to see it, said that it had crystalline appearance. This kind of uh, jogged my memory and 
you know, it's, it's odd that we're in the same topic of unidentified flying objects or unidentified aerial phenomena. And the crystalline description comes up multiple times. Is there metal that acts as if it is a thermosetting phenol formaldehyde resin? It does seem as if there seem to be some kind of metamaterials which have properties that allow them to react as if they are of synthetic components, almost rubbery. And the, the amazing part is that they are hard, infusible, and chemically resistant, but they are not plastic. Apparently, these are in fact metals, which bring up another interesting, interesting phenomenon. And that is the fact that scientists who have been employed by private corporations or institutions, for that matter, which have strong connections to military projects and the operation even of military bases, have encountered materials that they honestly believed was alien. They were tasked to dissolve these metals in certain cases, measure the gases that came off of the metals, and try to distinguish what exactly the metal was. And they have relayed to family members, loved ones, etc., that they quite honestly believed these metals were alien in origin because they could not fathom human beings making such materials. The mystery does not end with our government and its control of the situation, order of doing things, and obviously ability of covering things up. There is pretty amazing efforts taking place at other locations around the world. Other governments are definitely involved. Other government agencies are doing things which are incredible. China is among those and India. Interestingly, there is a liquid propulsion system center, which is a government agency, uh, a research and development center functioning under Indian Space Research Organization. And it has two units. It's uh, doing all kinds of liquid propulsion, empowering access to space and enabling space operations through liquid propulsion. It's engaged in development of liquid cryogenic propulsion stages for launch vehicles and auxiliary propulsion systems. And this is one that kind of falls under the radar a lot. People don't understand just how amazing the development of liquid propellant stages and control systems are for satellite propulsion systems, including the production of pressure transducers and other cryogenic upper stage launch systems uh, and vehicles. They have all kinds of wild stuff and interestingly have been involved for quite some time in spacecraft launch systems. And yet, not one you usually think of when you think of next-level, futuristic spacecraft propulsion. 
India is usually seen as a place in the East where Eastern religious magical systems are enhanced and or learned and definitely practiced. And the same is true of the West. Uh, Chaos magic and rocket science go along like peas and carrots. Of course, many people know about JPL, Jack Parsons, one of the most influential figures in the history of American space and the American space programs. He was an interesting guy. Um, he, he, He was very interested in the supernatural and he was into chaos magic. Friends with Aleister Crowlite, he was definitely a Thelemite or practiced Thelema, which was the religion of Aleister Crowley. And he, of course, believed in achieving a higher state of existence by embracing one's true will or one's ultimate purpose beyond selfishness or ego. He performed magic and dealt with pentagrams often. And this is interesting. Pentagrams are something very important to mention, and it's important that we also don't take this out of context because there is a variety of context here. However, the bottom line is ion thrusters and the pentagram have a lot to do with propulsion. We're talking about the (laughs) interesting situation where the pentagram or a shape close to it is used with ion thrusters. And it's not limited there. It's been used for other thrusters as well and is used in an array of different projects, models, and thrust configurations. Now, Jack Parsons had his first test site in the mountains directly behind the current location of Scientology's gold base north of Hemet at Gilman Hot Springs. Scientology also has strong connections to Parsons, but we'll get into that a bit later. The entire floodplain astride gold base was at one time designated as an EPA site for perchlorate contamination. This is mostly due to Parsons and the tests and experiments. Perch chlorate was the oxidizer that Parsons used for his JATO rockets. That's jet-assisted takeoff. There is a burn channel running down the center to the control the burn rate of this engine. Now remember that Aleister Crowley taught Parsons that central ambition was to achieve a higher state of existence by embracing one's true will or one's ultimate purpose beyond selfishness or ego. Due to these reasons, Jack Parsons performed ritual magic, including banishing impure elements with pentagrams, invoking the power of the holy guardian angel, and offering daily adorations to the sun. And these rituals, magic, and shapes, such as the pentagram, entered his field of work. He pushed the limits of rocket science and utilized much of the symbolism involved with the occult. Due to his selfless and fearless group of fellow scientists, which he gathered to do these experiments, 
They were nicknamed the Suicide Squad because of their selflessness and the possibility of them getting hurt in their experiments. What is interesting is Parsons' JATO rocket systems opened up in a very interesting way. The propellant would go around a red hollow burn control channel area the shape of a pentagram. This was by no means a coincidence. However, an amazing synchronicity in the fact that it was extremely useful, remarkably efficient, and of course, as with all things Jack Parsons seemed to get involved with, touch, or have his fingers in, groundbreaking. The scientific community took notice of Jack's amazing methods, and he, he made this happen over and over again since the age of 12. He was kicked out of school for blowing up toilets. He <laughs> was super involved with the occult. And a group of his successfully tested a static motor rocket that could run for over a minute, with funding from the federal government. Jack Parsons would go on to invent the first rocket engine to use castable composite propellant, a mixture of fuel that allowed rockets to harness enough force to finally make it into space. He was a groundbreaker, and everything he did was groundbreaking. Unfortunately, due to his involvement and beliefs with Thelema, he was sort of like a bull in a china shop, and it would come to cost him his career. By 1944, Parsons was booted from JPL and persuaded to sell his stock in the company. 30 years old, unemployed, and without a college degree, Parsons used the proceeds to purchase 1003 Orange Grove Avenue in Pasadena, California. This property turned into a hub of occultist fanaticism and homegrown rocket science, with rooms rented out to bohemians, musicians, artists, you name it, anarchists, atheists. Eventually, this is where the founder of Scientology comes into the picture. Parsons would rent out a room in his house to U.S. naval officer and science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard. The two of them jumped headfirst into Thelema together and did experiments, rituals, and practiced the occult as well as experimenting with science. Unfortunately, although being fast and close friends, L. Ron Hubbard would ultimately take Jack Parsons' former lover, ran off to Miami with her, and also took $10,000 of Jack Parsons' money. This left Parsons a broken man. He also ran into all kinds of problems with the government, and they were keen on getting him out of the system. Even though he was a genius, they could not handle his lack of boundaries, the people he was hanging out with, and the fact that he was a self-taught rocket scientist who invented solid rocket fuel. I mean, blowing all of his counterparts to the curb. He, his fellows were absolute minions compared to his intellect. As usual, instead of praising him, NASA has 
kicked him to the curb and tried to remove him from their history books as much as possible. Never a straight answer from NASA. Pun intended. When it came to government channels, though, although they kept kicking him out of classified projects, stripping him of his clearance, and doing so for a bunch of reasons, even the FBI banned him from working on projects preventing him from working in U.S. rocketry ever again. Yet, the inventor continued to be needed. The government continued to want him, and they were very needful of him because they wanted to utilize him in establishing an explosives factory. Well, they had a rush order they sent out to him. He had a home laboratory by this time, and they needed these explosives in a big hurry. Well, a fatal explosion took his life, and he was pronounced dead after the explosion. Only a day before, he had planned to move to Mexico. Interesting, the coincidence and the synchronicity of his demise. And it's also interesting that there's a lot of controversy surrounding Parsons' death. Criminologists believed that the explosion was caused by fulminated mercury, which they claim Jack Parsons accidentally dropped onto the floor. And Jack's colleagues were not impressed because they realized that he was scrupulously neat and would never drop anything or be clumsy when in his work. They believed that this was an assassination plot. But why? Had Jack invented something else that we are still unfamiliar with? And did the government shortly afterwards acquire this invention? We may never know. But these are theories of some of his peers. I can't lend credence to those, but it is interesting that these are the thoughts those who knew him best had. Getting back to L. Ron Hubbard and the fact that Jack Parsons' first test site in the mountains were directly behind the current location of Scientology's gold base north of Hemet at Gilman Hot Springs, the Jack Parsons and government rabbit hole go deeper and deeper here. As I mentioned before, this was at one point designated as an EPA site due to perch chlorate contamination. This was all due to Jack Parsons' experiments with jet-assisted takeoff rockets, JATO, for short. Well, now... Now, the top of the mountain overlooking gold just happens to be a high-security USN communications facility covered with antennas. Access to the mountaintop is through an unmanned underground entrance visible on the road going towards the Saboba Indian Reservation Casino. On the left side of the road, enclosed by barbed wire and labeled U.S. Government Property, No Trespassing. The trifecta of the occult, the government, of course, and Scientology. Now, Dianetics convinces people using various means of coercive persuasion including covert hypnosis and repetition of suggestion. 
that you have an evil, reactive mind, and that you have to get rid of this evil at any cost, and that L. Ron Hubbard's technology can do this. It also calls the reactive mind by the term the bank, and you have to get rid of that too, which makes emptying your bank account far easier. Are some of the same coercive, persuasive techniques used by other orders and maybe even possibly used by some of those in government positions? It's hard to say. I have no background or data that would prove this. However, the fact that technology seems to be the answer in Scientology and technology seems to be the answer in modern times, it seems as if hypnosis and Scientology and Dianetics have something to do with deprogramming our natural state. Everything that a hypnotized subject is told tends to be true for them afterwards. We may have different kinds of programming and different technologies. However, I can say that there have been strong ties to the investigation of Scientology by the government, and there are secrets of Scientology, especially their technology, the E-meter. Well, anyway, the government definitely investigated Scientology as well as their technologies, and maybe they picked something up along the way. So while now it takes hundreds, if not thousands, of rocket scientists to make new groundbreaking rocket propulsion systems inventions and discoveries, it seemed to uh, have been a one-man band in the past. However, that doesn't mean that science is not making daily strides as we open a new deep space program. In fact, earlier in 2023, NASA announced a successful test of a new propulsion technology for deep space travel. This technology is best described as a rotating detonation rocket engine powered by supersonic technology. The RDRE, rotating detonation rocket engine, generates thrust with detonation where a supersonic exothermic front accelerates to produce thrust. So it's super similar to a shockwave. And the way a shockwave travels through the atmosphere, much like when there is a dynamite explosion. NASA says that this design uses less fuel and has more thrust. Keep in mind that the RDRE is almost completely new technologies and includes 3D printed parts made with a copper alloy called GR Copper 42 or GR Cop 42, which the agency developed. This particular rocket seemed to withstand high temperatures and produced over 4,000 pounds of thrust for almost 60 seconds. If Jack Parsons did invent something, I would expect it to be along the order of something like this. Now, this isn't the end of the story. There is a ton of new technology, new thrust systems, new fuel systems, 
ion drives, fission, fusion, solar sails, and other ideas powering this new generation of spacecraft propulsion. It seems like it's out of almost a science fiction novel, not to go down the L. Ron Hubbard path again, but if we are to believe everything that seems to be coming out, including the use of things such as chemical rockets, ion drives, and very speculative systems, some with electrothermal attributes, it is a brave new world for propelling spacecraft to the furthest edges of the solar system and doing so in ways that seem beyond the comprehension of man. A new electric thruster has been rumored to be utilized that blasts out iodine. They claim it's been successfully tested in orbit and that it could lead to uh, tinier, smaller, much more simple, inexpensive, and high-performance engines for spacecraft, not to mention these quote-unquote satellites and not the ones that are hanging from balloons. This is, of course, according to them, and uh, it's generating a lot of interest. So why so many different types of propellants, thrusters, and some are, like I said, science fiction-y. Iodine spewing, come on, xenon gas with electric thrusters. Now, xenon's super rare. It makes up less than one part per 10 million of our atmosphere. And it's super expensive. It's about $3,000 for 2.2 pounds. You know, the same xenon that is in your... uh, high-end luxury automobile headlights. It's super complex, and yet these are the things and the systems that are being used. So how far-fetched is it that liquid light in propulsion is added to the mix? And if anything was a reverse-engineered real alien technology, I think it could be something like this. I mean, what would you believe an alien would utilize to travel light years across incomprehensible distances. I don't know. Maybe something like this? Now, reverse engineering and the theory that things are reverse engineered has been a long-time belief in UFO circles. Of course, that is the description of the act of the government dismantling an object to see how it works from the inside out and done to analyze and gain knowledge about the way something works. However, according to much of the rumor mill, taking alien technology and trying to reverse engineer it from our perspective could take hundreds of years. I mean, if we look at history, it took the Soviet Union, after analyzing the U.S. B-29 bomber, It it took the Soviets seven years to reverse engineer that. Now, this is a seemingly simple task when compared to the scope of analyzing an alien craft or alien propulsion system that is outside the bounds of our scientific method. So yeah, we're going to have to get creative and think outside the box, much like Jack Parsons. 
and secret military technology and operations need to uh, really do everything they can to make this scenario come true if we do, in fact, have and are sitting on alien spacecraft housed at secret bunkers and facilities. But that brings to question, is it even possible for us to have some sort of alien craft that has been downed or captured? Because what is the likelihood that an alien craft, which can travel vast distances in space to get where it needs to go, would be so super advanced to do these things, yet go down in something as simple as bad weather, a lightning storm, or a projectile being shot at it. This is where the catch-22 is, in my opinion. Yet we have congressmen saying that alien UFO tech is, in fact, being reverse-engineered in secret. That's Tennessee Congressman Tim Burchett. He told Newsweek that he believed we have recovered a craft at some point and possible beings. He also said, and I quote, I think that a lot of what's being reverse engineered right now, we just don't understand it, he continued. So we have a big question on our hands. Has the U.S. military, in fact, reverse engineered alien technology for its fighter jets? and possibly other craft? We have decades of secrecy if they have. For those familiar with Colonel Philip Corso, he wrote a book uh, later in life, in his later years, practically on his deathbed, called The Day After Roswell. It's a book which basically says we have, in fact, captured extraterrestrial spacecraft. And it mentions the Roswell UFO incident. It was written by United States Army Colonel Philip J. Corso. And if you remember UFO hunters, William J. Burns, the producer of that, he helped Philip J. Corso write the book. Now, the majority of the book is an account of Colonel Corso's claims that he was assigned to a secret government program. Not only that, but he provides that some material recovered from crashed spacecraft went to private industry. He didn't exactly say where the items came from to reverse engineer, but he did say that they were reverse engineered for corporate use. Now, Corso was a special assistant to Lieutenant General Arthur Trudeau, who headed Army Research and Development, and was in charge of the Foreign Technology Desk, as they call it. Foreign Technology is kind of a uh, secret in plain sight, because in this position, he would take technological artifacts from Russian, German, and other foreign sources and have American companies reverse engineer the technologies. However, this is where things get very muddled and interesting, because he also says that several aspects of these modern technologies, such as fiber optics and integrated circuits, 
were developed by using information taken from extraterrestrial craft. He also claimed that the world was at war with extraterrestrials and that the SDI system, also known as Star Wars, SDI stands for Strategic Defense Initiative, that that project was part of that campaign and was successfully concluded in Earth's favor. So apparently we have the ability to shoot these things down if they come into our airspace. There is a famous video of Ronald Reagan talking about SDI and Star Wars and what it all meant. He said that we would probably get along better as human beings if we had a common threat of alien invasion. Well, that would explain why the Strategic Defense Initiative project came out during his administration. Oddly, that particular initiative and project is the grandfather to most of the technologies which are now being discussed as these futuristic propulsion methods, such as trapping this liquid light. So once you're able to trap this liquid light into uh, cavities, into containers, then you're able to work with it. And you can basically formulate it into projects of propulsion, such as uh, done by possibly companies like Battelle or other companies which are private in that they are not government per se, even though they are. It's kind of a tough thing because they are hired by and work for the government. However, they are not government entities. So you have that plausible deniability. That's a big gray area. And basically, that's the sweet spot. That's the thing that has really changed since the times of Philip J. Corso. We learned that because of the work of people like him, that we can just hand these things over to private corporations and we have plausible deniability. We don't have to uh, describe or depict or explain anything. Utter genius and a pretty smooth move. It's exactly what I would do if I was the government. And why not? It's safe. There it is with a bow on it. What goes around comes around if you stick around. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to Hero Paranormal on YouTube. Sharing the podcast is the only way to break through the algorithm. Although I will most likely never be monetized on YouTube, it's the only way that anyone will really get to listen to the podcast. So please like, share, and subscribe. Also, if you have not subscribed to Hero Paranormal on Patreon, just go to Patreon, look up Hero Paranormal, and hit that I have five on it button, then for the price of a cup of coffee a month, you get it all. You get all of the content behind the paywall, and there is a ton of it. You can also access all that through HeroParanormal.com. Until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around.
Come blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an evisine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an evisine. Blast off.